Blog Talk Hello. Radio. where we discuss the issues and news that are relevant to the global unmanned aviation community. Um, This week's show is supposed to be chock full of airspace integration information. Um, We are supposed to have a conversation with Peter von Blyenberg, president of UBS International. We're having a little bit of trouble uh, bringing him on with Skype as uh, for some reason I cannot Skype him in and I'm waiting for him to call in. But uh, it, it promises to be a uh, interesting show if we can uh, get this all working. Gene, are you out there? Yes, I'm here, Patrick. I was wondering if you were going to be able to get the Skype connection made in time. Yeah, um, you know we're not we're having issues. I have uh, Peter on Skype, but I cannot Skype him into the Blog Talk Radio thing, which kind of stinks because he's in Paris. All right, here he is here. We're going to Skype him in. All right, we're going to get him. Uh, Peter, are you there? Uh, I've got you on a telephone. I've got you on Skype, uh, but the Skype apparently is not going through. The telephone is worse than Skype. You're better on Skype, even though your picture is there, which is lousy. Yeah, uh, this is true. Now, well, for some reason, now I can't, I can't Skype. So we're just going to have to do this telephone, and we were going to do some cheerful uh, banter and whatnot, but I want to get right into it because I know this call is going to be expensive. Okay, well, keep your Skype on because there I can hear you correctly. All right, let's see if we can do that. Anyway, um, you know, uh, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to just tell people, uh, you know, I've, I've known Peter for a while. Peter is the president of UBS International. And uh, basically, um, we'll jump right in here. Peter, um, could you kind of tell folks how you got into this thing, maybe a little bio about yourself, please? Well, it goes back a uh, number of years, uh, The something like... Uh, I've been involved with UAS now since 1984, Uh At that time, I was involved with the, uh, the development of the, uh, the first French UAS that went into service with the uh, French Army, and that those guys actually took along with them to the uh, first Gulf War. Uh, I stopped that and then uh, went back to uh, working for myself and uh, came to the conclusion that it would be of interest to uh, bind the European uh, community together uh, to attack the uh, the problem of uh, UAS and uh, regulations. And at that time, regulations were not sexy. Everybody thought I was bonkers, and uh, that I didn't have a business case. But as things went on, more and more people uh, got enlightened, understood, came on board, 
And then at a certain point, we uh, we also uh, created UVS International. At that time, uh, Euro UVS. That evolved uh, as time went on, and we actually got a substantial amount of non-European members being becoming part of UV, Euro UVS. And that principally had to do with all the work that we were doing uh, with the authorities to uh, progress rules and regulations. Uh, it then became apparent that the uh, non-European members of the association uh, should have the same rights as the European members. So, uh, be because up till then, only European members had voting rights. So we changed all that, and we also changed the name to uh, UVS International, like it is now. And uh, we now have members in something like, oh, I think it's 37 countries. And these are corporate and uh, governmental members. It's not only corporate. Well, that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to talk about, and and uh, we'll cover this briefly, but um, I try and tell people about your, your show, and this year's version was uh, RPAS 2012. And uh, I heard it was a very lively show. I wasn't able to make it. Could you recap it for the audience? Well, the uh, I think the subtitle of the uh, uh, the conference says it all, and that was uh, the Global RPAS Regulatory Forum. Uh, there were uh, a whole bunch of uh, regulatory authorities uh, from all over the place. Uh, ICAO was there. The European Commission was there with Director General Mobility and Transport as well as Director General uh, Enterprise and Industry, uh, Eurocontrol, IASA, ECAC, that's the European Civil Aviation Conference, uh, CESAR Joint Undertaking, the European Defense Agency. So these are all the major players uh, in defining rules and regulations for UAS. Uh, but there were also others from uh, Australia, from India, from Norway. Uh, we even had uh, guys from India, Greece. Uh, the Frontex Agency, which is the European Union Agency for Border Protection, was there. They're very finely attuned to the, uh, uh, the services that UAS can bring to them and uh, they were explaining to the audience what they were actually looking for. So there, it was uh, a large smattering of, uh, of countries and authorities. And what was really interesting was that uh, at the conference, uh, we were approached by uh, the Russians as well as the, uh, the Swedes and the Indians uh, with the request to help them set up uh, national organizations to, in cohorts with UVS International, uh, promote the use of UES in their countries. But what was even more critical is getting the uh, civil aviation authorities on board, specifically in India and in Russia. 
And do you do you think that's how you uh, draw these types of participants in? I mean, I, I, like I said, I've told people if you want to play in the the unmanned, let's say, aircraft sector, the RPA sector, you need to go to the show in Paris. And and like the, like the people that you were uh, just talking about and the titles and whatnot. I mean, if you want to uh, get in this game and you want to be able to have access to the civil aviation authority people or top tier people from companies, uh, they're at the show. But how, how did you begin to uh, draw these 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 top tier folks in? Well, the uh, we go out to them, uh, we inform them, uh, we keep them informed on what is going on in uh, the field of rules and regulations and standards, and uh, each time uh, we explain to them that to be able to play. Uh, the country has to get itself together, and they have to have a national voice. Now, the national voice is important because it helps bring the community together on a national level, but it's also important to be able to express the country's opinion at ICAO level. Now, in all of this, it's always a dual-directional uh, educational process, uh, just like in your country and like in mine, uh, the authorities don't always understand the, uh, the industry folks, and the industry people, in most cases, don't understand the regulatory guys. They don't speak the same language, they don't have the same background, and in many cases, industry uh, doesn't have the required aviation experience. So the educational part is very, very important. Now, hooked up to that is also the language part. That is something that you guys don't have because you all speak the same language, except the 50% of the Americans who speak Spanish. Uh, But in all of these other countries, uh, or the majority of them, English is not the mother tongue. So there is a very clear educational process that we push to get all these people to speak the same language, use the same words, so that they can actually effectively communicate. Right, and and I would say that uh, the UVS International is definitely a clearinghouse for information. And uh, you know, I also speak to the the yearbook that you do, the RPAS Global Perspectives. Could you uh, give us your website address, Peter? Uh, well, we've, we've got two. The association website is www.uvsuniformvictorsierra-international.org. And the, uh, the document repository website is www.uvsuniformvictorsierra-info. Dot, uh, com. And, and the yearbook is linked to that, right? They're, they're available on both sites. Uh, they're openly accessible. Um, the entire text is there. Okay, excellent. And I would suggest that uh, people go onto that site, sign, uh, sign in, uh, read the articles in the yearbook. Um, they're actually pretty good. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I, I uh, like to participate in that. Uh, also, I think if you were looking for information, pictures, whatever else of, of systems, you need to get on there and look. Um, well, 
There might be a thing to add to that, Patrick, and that is the, the objective of the yearbook. Uh, okay. We we try to have as many stakeholders as possible express their opinions in it. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to agree with what the community wants. Uh, there are critical articles in there, but from the beginning, we have gone out from the, uh, the basis that all the stakeholders have to be involved. So the international or the European, excuse me, uh, Aeromodelist Association, they're in there. Uh, as the Airline Pilots Association, who obviously don't always agree with what the UAS industry would like. But it's important that all these people come together and have a place where they can express their, uh, their views. And this book goes out to... We print 10,000 copies, uh, but what is even more interesting is that the entire text is available on more than 500 governmental intranets. I'm not saying websites, intranets. Right. Well, I know that, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Is in my travels, and I get all around the country and the world, it surprises me how many offices I go into and people have a copy of that yearbook. And uh, I use it kind of as a uh, almost a calling card for myself. But uh, now I've noticed the others. I was uh, at your show last year, and I've noticed uh, what I think is a little bit of a malaise in the integration community. And I don't know if that's as a whole or just the Americans. What do you think? Well, I think you guys have a... You have your challenges. Uh, we have ours in Europe, and the rest of the world has theirs. Uh, if I compare uh, Europe to the U.S., uh, on your side, you have one country. On our side, we have 27. And uh, they don't speak the, the same languages on our side. Uh, so we had to form a community. Uh, that has now been done. But we also ran into the same problems that uh, you've run into, and that is that we need political backup uh, to make all of this work. And uh, that was something that we initiated a number of years ago, because in Europe that means the European Commission and the agencies of the European Commission. Uh, that has now been accomplished. They're, uh, they're on board. They understand the problems. But what is even more interesting is that they understand the interest of uh, giving UAS uh, access to European airspace. Uh, all of this is, of course, based on uh, presenting viable business cases, but uh, over the last year, with the uh, European uh, Commission UAS panel, uh, which they put together to find out what the status was in Europe and how best to progress, uh, it became very clear that uh, there are an enormous amount of viable business cases out there, but the breaking point uh, is uh, rules and regulations. They also found out that uh, 
the majority of the new technologies are coming out of small and medium-sized enterprises. These small and medium-sized enterprises, if they do not have uh, a business motive to continue, they're going to go elsewhere. And right, right. That is something yeah, that so the Commission didn't want to uh, encourage. So they came to the conclusion that it would be best to uh, back up the small and medium-sized enterprises by making it easier for them to uh, not only sell UAS, but also operate UAS. It has been clearly recognized now by the European Commission that a whole new business branch uh, consisting of uh, UAS operators, and operators, I use the word in the ICAO sense, that's a company employing pilots who fly unmanned aircraft. And uh, that business uh, uh, base is going to grow substantially, but it's going to grow incrementally. And this is where I come to the major difference between the U.S. and Europe. Uh, the FAA seems to want to tackle big, small, giant uh, UAS all at the same time and come out with one big scheme that is going to make it possible for all these UAS to fly at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas we're taking, when I say we, I mean Europe, is taking incremental approach where uh, we're going to start with the smaller ones, uh, and then as the community gains maturity, uh, as the uh, the authorities uh, become less frightened of uh, UAS, and we actually have statistics that we can draw on showing that uh, there is um, an industry maturity and a product maturity, we will climb in altitude and in distance. And that is now, that's now going to be implemented uh, by, uh, by Europe. Uh, the European Commission has just started. Uh, the first meeting actually took place last week. Uh, something called the uh, European uh, Steering Group. In the steering group, uh, there are a whole bunch of guys from different uh, director generals, which is, for the Americans who don't understand, the same thing as uh, a department uh, of commerce, department of industry. Uh, but there are also uh, the research organizations are in there, but also agencies like IASA, and uh, uh, Frontex. So it, the agencies at different levels. And of course, industry is in there. Uh, and these guys are going to, and by the way, UVS International is part of this. Uh, we're one of the, uh, the team that is leading all of this. And uh, we will be uh, drawing up a uh, roadmap of how all of this is going to be working. That roadmap will be finished uh, before Christmas of this year. And uh, immediately afterwards, the implementation of that roadmap will start. And we hope to have things flying, that's the objective anyway, in a, in a fairly reasonable amount 
by uh, December 2015. Hmm. Well, uh, I think you make some interesting points. Uh, I would agree with you that uh, it seems like the moneyed interest here, the DOD guys, are the ones driving the effort, and I call it the uh, ugly stepsisters trying to stuff their foot in the glass slipper. Uh, I did want to talk about a part of current events, and I don't know if you saw that, uh, what was that, the code of, industry code of conduct. I wanted to get uh, Gene's take on that first. Gene, did you see that? I did see that, Patrick, and uh, it was interesting to note that there was a lot of common sense statements made, and uh, some of the statements were very familiar of the, the sorts of standards that we tried to present many years ago when we started trying to push UA into the national airspace. Uh, it's great that an organization as large as AUBSI would, would take up the ball and run with it because, as Peter says, we have to have the political backup. We have to have that support to continue and to, and to build the confidence that we need that UAs can be positive and they can be a tool. So I'd, I'd have to agree completely with uh, everything that uh, that Peter has already said and their approach is in, on the European side. It's very parallel to what we're doing. Well, and, and one other thing, Peter, I didn't really introduce you to Gene, uh, but Gene Robinson is also a board member of uh, RCAPA mm-hmm. and it has been around for years. Uh, he actually just wrote a book, uh, First to Deploy, and it's basically uh, an account of using small unmanned aircraft systems for search and rescue. Right. But uh, I, I wanted him to speak to that. What, did you see the code of conduct, and do you have any comments? Well, uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've seen it. Uh, I've read it. Uh, it uh, the surprising thing uh, for me was that... Uh, in the uh, subtitle, it said Industry Code of Conduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would have been more appropriate if it had said American Industry Code of Conduct. Uh, Probably. If uh, we and the rest of the world are not consulted, uh, it's not going to be the Americans that are going to speak for us. And actually, I think they made a mistake by not consulting the rest of the world it would have been a much stronger thing if it had been. Now, nothing in this code of conduct that I have read is really surprising. Uh, but, uh, again, it has to be something more than just this. I mean, everything that is stated here, uh, we've been trying to do for years. Exactly. Um, so why is this coming out now? Um, uh, I would like to see uh, more active participation of AUVSI in the actual work that has to be done. And mm. uh, I don't see them anywhere. Well, I, I will say that I think that the impetus for this, uh, you know, we're really under fire over here in the States with privacy. And the American public, uh, I think, is kind of seeing that this technology can be abused. And and uh, that's an issue, and I think that uh, AUVSI um, tried to put something together and out in, in a timely fashion. I do agree, uh, you know, and it was kind of one of the things that our CAPA had done 
where we have a kind of a, a you know best practices or whatever, let's let's back that up with some um, let's say industry-based standards um, and some some ideas behind what's in that. And and I'm hoping that uh, they come up with something a little bit more in depth. Uh, I think it was a, a good start, like you said, um, maybe a little bit more inclusion or you know from an American perspective. But I think that that was the impetus. Um, now, again, you called in, so I kind of I want to keep rolling. And you did touch on uh, some of these uh, issues that I wanted to talk about, like the uh, current IKO development and what's going on there. I want to speak about uh, what's happening with the European Commission, uh, the EuroK, uh, the new working group 93, and the RPAS uh, steering group. And I know that I just threw a lot of stuff at you. But I'm going to just let you kind of roll with that, Peter, and, um, you know, we'll just go from there. So if, if you would. Okay. Um, if we if we look at the, uh, the IKO UAS study group, uh, the work is uh, progressing very nicely. Um, the IKO uh, way of doing things is very specific. It's also extremely slow. Uh, that's just the way the beast, the, the nature of the beast. However, uh, even though they're slower than NATO, they got on board with uh, UAS faster than anything anybody had ever seen before. Uh, mm -hmm. There is uh, very great support for it within ICAO. At all levels within ICAO, they've recognized now the importance of this work. Uh, the uh, circular 320 that was brought out, or 328 that was brought out last year, was a milestone. Um, but it's just a beginning. Uh, we're now going into the, uh, the phase of uh, producing the U UAS or RPAS manual. Uh, that is also an extremely important thing. Uh, mm -hmm. It's going to take a lot of work. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, the study group consists of uh, state representatives and representatives of internationally recognized organizations. Uh, the, the work, uh, everything they produce uh, is made public, uh, but it has to be purchased. It's not free. Mm -hmm. um, I like public, the, but I don't like purchase. That's me. Well, the, that's you. Uh, you can uh, scream all you want. Uh, there are certain organizations in the world that you won't be able to change. And uh, right. as long as the United States still owes a hell of a lot of money to ICAO, uh, I don't think you should say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, ICAO is God you have to play with God uh, you have to respect God and uh, in this case these guys are really going out of their way uh, to make all of this feasible at the same time I'd like to mention also that uh, at the civil military uh, coordination uh conference that took place at ICAO, it was decided that uh, UAS 
had to be taken into account in the field of civil-military cooperation. And ICAO is now in the process of uh, organizing regional workshops uh, to bring the circular that they've brought out on civil-military cooperation uh, to the attention of the regional authorities. And when I say regional authorities, uh, it's like Latin America, uh, the Far East, the Middle East, um, uh, Africa, uh, and Europe. The, uh, at these events, uh, UAS is always on the agenda. Uh, we now have had a regional workshop in uh, Latin America. We've had one in, uh, that was in Lima, Peru. We're not, we've had one in, uh, and that was last year. Uh, this year we had one in Bangkok for the Far East. Uh, and in September there's going to be one in uh, Jeddah for Saudi Arabia for the Middle East. And in all these cases... UES are put on the agenda, and uh, I'm requested to give a brief to the regional authorities on what is going on in the field of UES, certification, airworthiness, standards, and operational rules and regulations. So they're into it. Then you asked yeah. me about EuroK. Well, EuroK is very similar to RTCA uh, on your side. Uh, they're progressing uh, steadily but slowly uh, with the creation of uh, standards. Uh, within EuroK, uh, there is now a split between uh, UES below 150 kilograms and UES above 150 kilograms. Mm -hmm. That split has to do with a... Um, a legal split that was made by the European Commission when it constituted uh, the European Aviation Safety Agency, IASA. Responsibility for UAS below 150 kilograms lies with the national authorities, whereas uh, UAS with a mass of more than 150 kilograms are the responsibility of IASA. Right. Um, now, if I can, if I can just interject for the for the listeners' benefit, <clears throat> uh, you know, in the United States, uh, our definition of a small UAS is 55 pounds and under, but the the definition um, really, basically, for uh, Europe and the efforts that you're talking about is 150 kilos and under. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. I just wanted to make that delineation for people because they might get a little confused because I say that too. I'm, I, I really kind of think of the 150 kilos as 90 to 95% of the market moving into the future. you agree with that or disagree? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, in the, uh, during the, uh, the process of the uh, European Commission UES panel, it became quite apparent that uh, by far the, the majority of uh, the current uh, non-military UAS uh, applications were uh, using UAS below 25 kilos. Mm -hmm. 25 kilos comes to, uh, equates roughly to your 55 pounds. 
when I say the majority, I'll put it at something like uh, above 95%. Mm -hmm. uh, however, if we dig into that uh, amount, we'll find out that the, or we found out that the majority is of that 95% is below 15 kilograms. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you go down, the numbers get bigger. Uh, and that's where the, the, the challenge is, because uh, and not only uh, within Europe, also at ICAO, uh, we have not come to grips yet at w what mass ICAO has to start looking at an aircraft. So you mean we like there might be kilogram aircraft that can cross the Atlantic at three thousand meters, right? Uh, well, and 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 I think that you know you're hitting on a point there that uh, drum that Gene always hits. I mean, Gene's aircraft, uh, Gene's been doing this SAR with uh, these small UAS for you know many years now, and, and we keep t kind of talking about this on the show is is how the um, the, the the sensors are better, the different types of sensors you can carry, and I mean, Gene, what, what's the typical weight of, of the uh, Spectra or the aircraft that you were using for SAR? Well, typically the, the Spectra runs anywhere between four and a half and five and a half pounds, depending upon the sensor. And uh, you know, th these are short term; they're they're very short uh, flight durations. I say short within an hour, uh, and they have a very small footprint, a very small operational footprint. Uh, you know, of just you know, a few square kilometers or, or miles even. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we feel like these are going to probably be the more practical use type aircrafts as they move out into the civilian arena. Much like Peter said, you know, as, as the numbers get smaller, weight numbers get smaller, the use numbers go way up. Right. Well, the thing with that too, though, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm jumping in on this again, but, you know, the, the IKO definition of frangible, uh, you know, something that with um, low mass and low speed, you know, uh, that that's where I'd like to see this thing start out. Let's let's get that door open. There are many uses you can use these aircraft for. Let, let's start there and get people used to this. Um, we got a little sidetracked, so I want to jump right back to you, Peter, the, the, what you were on here about the numbers and do you, were those were those numbers too? Those findings were was that kind of the impetus behind the the working group ninety three or the small RPA uh, expert groups? Yeah, uh, quite obviously because uh, when you bunch them all together, the big uh, the big UAS and the small UAS, like was the case within your okay, uh, that means that. Uh, Everything is dominated by the bigger boys, mm -hmm. uh, the bigger companies who produce bigger aircraft, who have more financial and personnel resources, whereas the smaller uh, companies don't have the people, the time, or the money to sit in endless meetings. They right. need immediate results. So um, last year, I made a proposal to your okay, uh that took all of this into account and uh, put together a, a work mythology that would suit uh, the uh, smaller companies, give them input, 
the possibility of putting in their views, but also, and that's very important, helping informing uh, a community opinion. Uh, we were not getting enough of the small players into EuroK to participate. And this had for a part to do with the fact that uh, EuroK is a very traditional organization, a traditional aviation organization. So uh, the, the tradition had it that you had to be a member of EuroK to be able to participate. Well, right. you cannot expect uh, small companies, one, two, three-man companies, to pay multi-hundred uh, euro fees for the privilege of doing work for right. the community. So having uh, thought this all through and discussed it with a number of, uh, of organizations, we came with this proposal, which was finally accepted in December uh, 2011, and that was the beginning of Working Group 93, which is now ongoing. Uh, we've had our first uh, uh, kickoff meeting, and we now have, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, over 150 uh, companies signed up. Uh, they can sign up either as an active participant or a passive participant, an observer, Mm -hmm. uh, what is very interesting to see is that by far the majority are active participants. Well, and I, I think people have a stake in the game. Now, and a lot of the points that you're making here are the same issues that we have on this side of the uh, Atlantic. And, uh, you know, I've sat through a lot of this, the RTCA efforts, the ASTM efforts, and some other efforts, and, and whatever else. And, and some of the, the scenarios that you're describing are some of the same issues that I have over here. I cannot afford, I've been at this, uh, you know, I call myself a relative newcomer, and I've been at this about eight years. And uh, I've sat through a lot of meetings where nothing's gotten done. I've also described a situation to, I'd say, industry insiders that, that model that you described with EuroK and, and some of the Civil Aviation Authority and uh, FAA, same thing. We're the regulator. We're going to work on regulations. You jump in line, and this is the process. Well, you know what? Uh, you know, Moore's Law keeps kicking in here, and the technology goes beyond, and people are doing their own thing. And this isn't traditional uh, aviation in the sense that we're making big aircraft. Uh, some companies are, but by and large, it's smaller aircraft. And most of the people that develop are not aviation people. So when I sit in a meeting, and I sit in a meeting for uh, several hours, and I'm trying to gauge what type of work is, is going on or not going on, uh, I have to minimize my exposure and, and cut out. So if I see something good going on, I'm all in. I want to participate. It looks like it's going to be 10 years. I don't have time to participate. So I think that is you're bringing up some good points that, that people need to realize uh, with these efforts. And, and it sounds like uh, we're making inroads with that. Well, there's also a very interesting thing that is now starting to be implemented in Europe, which is called a qualified entity. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, that's going to go European-wide. Uh, a qualified entity is a legal entity, by that I mean a company, that has been mandated by the National Civil Aviation Authority 
to undertake work for them relative to UAS. Uh, this has to do with the fact that many of the civil aviation authorities don't have the time, the money, or the people to take care of uh, small UAS uh, because there are a lot of them out there, and um, it's probably best to give you an example. There is mm-hmm. a, an existing qualified entity now in uh, the United Kingdom, and thanks to uh, them being there, there are now well over, uh, it's close to 200, um, commercially operating UAS operators. Um, there's uh, uh, 120, if I'm not mistaken, or 140 uh, flight licenses that have been granted in Sweden, mm-hmm. all for non-military uh, commercial operations. Uh, this doesn't even take into account the research uh, and the scientific operations. All of this right. is with small RPAS. It's interesting that you're making these points. A lot of people, I think, over here in the States don't realize what's going on in the rest of the world. And I know it's hard to believe that that the Americans over here that were U.S.-centric. But um, I I really think that uh, we uh, in here in the United States need to look to these examples that you're describing. Um, I do think that uh, the UK CAA has been uh, taking a very pragmatic approach. Their CAP 722 document, uh, even while that was being developed while I was on the ARC, that was kind of interested in we were shown parts and pieces of that, but we were not really given the the big picture on that. And I say that uh, they've made a lot of progress while we're still kind of uh, swimming in their wake, as it were. Oh, yes, and, but the thing uh, that everybody has to understand, uh, you mentioned it earlier that a lot of the small uh, companies in the U.S. Are, don't have aviation experience. Um, we have the same problem over here. Now, what is going to be, and they can jump and scream to high heaven, uh, but they're going to have to learn that they're part of the aviation community and that there are rules that you have to have master to be able to be part of that community. And if there's an operator out there who doesn't know what the rules of the air are, he's not going to operate UAS. Point final. It's not just the guy out of his garage flying a UAS who's going to be part of the community. In Europe, we have taken that decision. There has to be an education base that an operator has to have. Now, it all depends on what type of UES he's going to operate, at what altitude and what distance from the operator the thing is going to fly, where that baseline is going to be. So, Mm -hmm. obviously, if you're doing, uh, I don't know, flare stack inspections, well, you're flying maximum uh, 25, 30 meters horizontal and you're flying at an altitude of maybe 50, 60 meters. Well, that guy will not have to have as high a base of education, aviation education, as somebody who's flying at 3,000 meters and uh, 50 kilometers. Right, and that's that's one. 
The other one is the operator who employs the pilot. Now, if the pilot is a one-man company, he's also the operator. But that operator is also going to have to be qualified. Right. And now, and I don't want to. What we're doing in '93, we have well, clearly on, understood that we have to deal with these issues. It's not only the, the the technical part. It's not only the aircraft and the system. Right. Now, I don't want to cut you off, but we're down to like 50 seconds, and the show's over. Believe it or not, the 45 minutes is over. This has been really informative. Um, I'm, I'm glad you stayed on the whole time. I think uh, there's a lot of information to be gleaned here. Again, uh, I'm going to ask people to go to the website. Um, I appreciate you, you coming on, Peter, and uh, staying the whole time. And I would like to extend an invitation or maybe uh, have you come back in about six months and give us an update on the work that you were talking about. Do you think that's possible? Well, that's possible. And then I'd like to touch on uh, the things that are going on in uh, in China, in India, in Latin America, uh, specifically in Brazil and in Russia, because I don't think uh, you guys are really aware of what's going on in these countries. And, no, we're uh, not. That's it right there. 